I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, February 21st, 2024, the 1127th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Okay, so today we get into part three of this Navalny investigation, and I am mostly sure that we will conclude this series today, but hey, we're just starting out here. I have no idea how things are going to end up in a couple hours. I know where I'm going. I just have no idea how long it'll take to get there. 
So let's start with a quick recap. On Friday, we discussed Fonnie Willis as the trial in Fulton County, Georgia, kind of falls apart due to Fonnie Willis's scandal, a relationship with her special prosecutor assigned to the Trump prosecution, Nathan Wade. It's important to remember that Fonnie Willis, after a false start where the indictment was posted on the court's website, brought her indictment against Donald Trump. It was essentially a copy and paste job from a framework set out in a report by the Brookings Institution and specifically Norm Eisen, the author of Color Revolutions Worldwide. Everything was in place. Eisen and Brookings compiled all of what they call facts. Put it all together. They said Donald Trump is guilty. And not only is he guilty, this is going to create a grand sweeping narrative. This massive RICO trial It's going to capture the attention of the nation. And at that point, everyone will know that Donald Trump is guilty, guilty, guilty. But Fonnie Willis's relationship with Nathan Wade had begun before any of this had started. So it's at least possible she was already compromised by this scandal when she was initially tasked with bringing this prosecution. And the fact that members of the Uniparty left mainstream media piled on along with the members of the Uniparty right in participating in this Fonnie Willis takedown, that leads me to believe that she's getting heat from both sides. She was being referred to as toast. And I think that that is actually a rather appropriate way to describe what is happening to Fonnie Willis. And I think we can detect some of those patterns with the Alexei Navalny issue. So on Monday, we talked about his death. We talked about the story of attempted assassinations before that. The story about how agents of Vladimir Putin and Russian intelligence poisoned Alexei Navalny with a nerve agent called Novichok. They were able to line the crotch area of his underwear with Novichok. That's how they poisoned him. They were able to discover this and prove Putin's guilt with the help of a so-called journalist from the intel-adjacent organization Bellingcat. And we'll get into a little bit more about Bellingcat in just a minute. Bellingcat and Navalny launched a little sting operation, and that's how they caught Putin's agents. And all of that was based on a prior, similarly unproven Putin poisoning. And of course, Putin is being blamed for Navalny's reported death last Friday, even though all we know about the supposed death is that it came as the result of a blood clot. He had sudden adult death syndrome. He died suddenly. Yesterday, we discussed Alexei Navalny's rise to what the media refers to as prominence, becoming Putin's most credible opposition, even though The Russian people did not see him that way. No one who actually matters saw Navalny as Putin's primary opposition, except for people who overthrow countries and install puppets. Alexei Navalny was the person chosen to play that role by the global regime. So from their perspective, perhaps he was the most credible opposition. But that just means they were ignoring The actual opposition party in Russia, the opposition to Vladimir Putin in Russia is the Communist Party. And Alexei Navalny, of course, is happy to work with the Communist Party, just as he's happy to work with neo-Nazis. And we discussed his history of associations with extremist groups, his own building of extremist groups, and his role in what was setting up to be a color revolution 
in Russia this year as they are leading up to a presidential election in only three weeks now. And that was to be followed soon after with a Ukrainian election that looks like it is canceled. And as we'll see by the end, the news cycle was aligning to put maximum possible pressure on Russia and convince the world that a change must be made. How will that change be made? Will it be by democratic methods? Will the people of Russia get to speak their voice and choose someone else? No, it won't be anything like that. They'll just overthrow the country and convince Western audiences that all of it was natural so that Western audiences will play along and be encouraged to fund all of these fake foreign proxy wars. And as we go through this, let's just keep those frameworks in mind from yesterday. The idea of toast, you're getting heat from one side, you start getting heat from the other, and you are taken down. The idea of false starts, how narratives can be preempted, little warning signs that spoil the impact of a newly released narrative, observing the construction of these broad sweeping narratives that play out over years to create what I referred to as a narrative bomb and how that's diffused. We're going to get into some of that today. And then the final thing is just the observation of how they build up these Manchurian candidates, how these characters are built to represent everything and its opposite so that there is no thing that they truly represent, but there is something there for absolutely everyone so that whoever is constructing one of these Manchurian candidates can make the case that there is something about this candidate that appeals to everyone, and that is why we have built such a broad coalition, the sort of coalition that can win elections even against very popular and powerful leaders. And so let's begin today with Bellingcat. This is from October 8th, 2018 in Mint Press News, which is a great independent journalism site. This is the wonderful investigative reporter Whitney Webb. The headline is Omidyar's Intercept teams up with war propaganda firm Bellingcat. The Intercept, along with its parent company, First Look Media, recently hosted a workshop for pro-war Google-funded organization Bellingcat in New York. The workshop, which cost $2,500 per person to attend and lasted five days, aimed to instruct participants in how to perform investigations using quote-unquote open-source tools with Bellingcat's past controversial investigations for use as case studies. The exact details of what occurred during the workshop have not been made public, and Bellingcat founder Elliot Higgins declined to elaborate on the workshop when pressed on social media. So what they were trying to do is build some sort of digital army so that independent investigators would know how to operate with open source intelligence. Now, if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say that that sounds exactly like what the QOP was spun up to accomplish. This article in Mint Press News was published about a year after the QOP began. Maybe Bellingcat was worried that independent investigators online were going to make their job a lot more difficult, and so they needed their own help. The decision on the part of The Intercept is particularly troubling given that the publication has long been associated with the track records of its founding members, such as Jeremy Scahill and Glenn Greenwald, who have long been promoted as important progressive and anti-war voices in the U.S. media landscape. Greenwald publicly distanced himself 
from the decision to host the workshop, stating on Twitter that he was not involved in making the decision and that if he had been, it was not one that he would have made. However, he stopped short of condemning the decision. Bellingcat's open support for foreign military intervention and tendency to promote NATO and U.S. war propaganda are unsurprising when one considers how the group is funded and the groups with which it regularly collaborates. For instance, Bellingcat regularly works with the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, which, according to the late journalist Robert Perry, quote, engages in investigative journalism that usually goes after governments that have fallen into disfavor with the United States and then are singled out for accusations of corruption. OCCRP is notably funded by USAID and the controversial George Soros-funded Open Society Foundations. So none of these organizations portray themselves as having a certain political bias They portray themselves as being corruption investigators. And so they will investigate all the quote unquote corruption that could convincingly be pinned on any of the regime's opponents. It is a strategy for taking down governments and it is funded by the people who make it their mission to take down governments. It's worth noting that Alexei Navalny framed his organization and their work in the exact same terms. His organization was called the Anti-Corruption Foundation. In addition, Bellingcat's founder, Elliot Higgins, is employed by the Atlantic Council, which is partially funded by the U.S. State Department, NATO, and U.S. weapons manufacturers. It should come as little surprise, then, that the results of Bellingcat's quote-unquote findings often fit neatly with narratives promoted by NATO and the U.S. government, despite their poor track record in terms of accuracy. Bellingcat's funding is even more telling than its professional associations. Indeed, despite promoting itself as an independent and open source investigation site, Bellingcat has received a significant portion of its funding from Google, which is also one of the most powerful U.S. military contractors and whose rise to prominence was directly aided by the CIA. Google has also been actively promoting regime change in countries like Syria, a policy that Bellingcat also promotes. As one example, leaked emails between Jared Cohen, former director of Google Ideas, now Jigsaw, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton revealed that Google developed software aimed at assisting al-Qaeda and other Syrian opposition groups in boosting their ranks. Furthermore, Cohen was once described by Stratfor intelligence analysts as a loose cannon for his deep involvement in Middle Eastern regime change efforts. Whitney Webb notes that under President Donald Trump, Google's connections to the U.S. government have become even more powerful as the current Trump appointed director of national intelligence once worked as a corporate lobbyist for Google. And she is talking about Dan Coates here. Let's skip down to the section on Pierre Omidyar. In addition, The Intercept's main funder, eBay billionaire Pierre Omidyar, shares innumerable connections to the U.S. government and has helped fund regime change operations abroad in the past, suggesting a likely reason behind the publication's willingness to associate itself with Bellingcat. For instance, Omidyar made more visits to the Obama White House between 2009 and 2013 than Google's Eric Schmidt. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, or Amazon's Jeff Bezos. 
He also donated $30 million to the Clinton Global Initiative and directly co-invested with the State Department, funding groups, some of them overtly fascist, that worked to overthrow Ukraine's democratically elected government in 2014. Now, how about that? Even after Obama left office, Omidyar has continued to fund USAID, particularly its overseas program aimed at, quote, advancing U.S. national security interests abroad. Omidyar's Ulupono initiative also co-sponsors one of the Pentagon's most important contractor expos, a direct link between Omidyar initiatives and the U.S. military industrial complex. Wikipedia's entry for Bellingcat lists their notable cases. The first was MH17, about a July 2014 Malaysia Airlines flight that was shot down while flying over eastern Ukraine, apparently hit by a burst of quote-unquote high-energy objects. They, of course, have covered the Russia-Ukraine war and were responsible for supporting the maternity hospital op and photo shoot. They've worked on the Syrian quote-unquote civil war, the Yemeni civil war, the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. Yes, they are the people responsible for quote-unquote proving that, and that was the basis on which they quote-unquote proved that Navalny had been poisoned in the same way. They worked on the Christchurch mosque shootings, the Tigray War, and of course, no quasi-intelligence unit would be complete without having investigated QAnon, the U.S. Capitol attack, and Ashley Babbitt. The Wikipedia entry notes that among other funders, Bellingcat has received money for the National Endowment for Democracy. And Wikipedia says of them, the National Endowment for Democracy is a quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organization in the United States founded in 1983 to advance democracy worldwide by promoting political and economic institutions such as political groups, trade unions, free markets, and business groups. And that sounds totally innocuous so far. I mean, who wouldn't want to advance the project of democracy worldwide? The NED was created as a bipartisan, private, nonprofit corporation and in turn acts as a grant-making foundation. It is funded primarily by an annual allocation from the U.S. Congress. In addition to its grants program, the NED also supports and houses the Journal of Democracy, the World Movement for Democracy, the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Reagan-Faskell Fellowship Program, the Network of Democracy Research Institutes, and the Center for International Media Assistance. Upon its founding, the NED assumed some former activities of the CIA. Political groups, activists, and some governments have said the NED has been an instrument of United States foreign policy helping to foster regime change. The article notes that in 2018, Donald Trump proposed to slash the NED's funding and cut its links to the Democratic and Republican institutes. They give an award out, a democracy award each year to recognize, quote, the courageous and creative work of individuals and organizations that have advanced the cause of human rights and democracy around the world. 
Past speakers at the awards ceremony include John McCain, Paul Ryan, and Nancy Pelosi. Their 2022 award went to four what they call civil society organizations in Ukraine for their support and defense of so-called democracy in Ukraine. One of those organizations was called the Anti-Corruption Action Center. So again, all of this under the guise of being against corruption, despite being on the side of a global criminal organization. And interestingly, one of their efforts was in 2015 when they protested in front of then Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko's residence and called for Poroshenko to fire the prosecutor general of Ukraine, none other than Viktor Shokin. And it was Viktor Shokin, of course, who the fake president wanted fired. That's who he was talking about in front of the Council on Foreign Relations when he talked about the quid pro quo. He said he was going to withhold the billion dollars of U.S. aid unless the prosecutor was fired. And son of a bitch, he was fired. The ramifications and consequences of that situation continued to play out. People are beginning to realize that not only is that just corruption on Joe Biden's part, but that Biden would either be directly subverting the policy of the president at the time, Barack Obama, or Barack Obama would have had full knowledge of Biden's dealings and given his approval. In either case, we are talking about political corruption of the highest order that goes all the way up to the top of the American government. The National Endowment for Democracy released a statement on Navalny's death. This is available on their website, NED.org. The National Endowment for Democracy is deeply saddened by the tragic death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in prison at age 47. Navalny's death comes after three years of unjust imprisonment, torture, and denial of adequate medical care at the hands of the Russian regime. Again, that's just simply not true. NED calls for a thorough and transparent investigation into the surrounding circumstances and the immediate and unconditional release of all political prisoners arbitrarily detained in Russia for speaking against the regime. They cite comments from Navalny's wife, Yulia, at the Munich Security Conference and then write, Navalny has devoted his life to the struggle against the Putin regime's corruption and repression at huge personal risk. Most notably, only a few months after surviving a Kremlin assassination attempt, he decided to return to Russia in 2021 to face almost certain imprisonment. His commitment and personal courage have made him a hero to Russians, seeking a democratic future for their country and to their allies and supporters around the world. His immense personal sacrifice will inspire those fighting for a democratic Russia to devote even greater effort to their cause. The entire team at NED expresses our solidarity with Alexei Navalny, his family, political prisoners in Russia, and the democratic aspirations of all Russian citizens, said Miriam Lanskoy, senior director for Eurasia at the National Endowment for Democracy. And let's go back to their description. The NED was created as a bipartisan, private, nonprofit corporation and in turn acts as a grant-making foundation. It is funded primarily by an annual allocation from the U.S. Congress. Also, upon its founding, the NED assumed some former activities of the CIA. 
Political groups, activists, and some governments have said the NED has been an instrument of United States foreign policy helping to foster regime change. So this is ostensibly taxpayer money going to this quasi-governmental organization that supports regime change around the world, is partially responsible for funding Bellingcat, and is also a major backer of Alexei Navalny, who himself has the goal of regime change in Russia, and whose associates, as we discussed yesterday, were meeting all the way back in 2012 with the British government asking for 10 to $20 million a year in order to organize and stage color revolutions in Russia with the stated goal of overthrowing Vladimir Putin. Now, if you are a globalist, if you are the sort of American that wants a worldwide American empire, believing that it would be in any way American, then maybe all of this sounds just fine to you. But if you are for America first and you care about sovereign nations and their ability to chart their own course in the world, then this should be pretty disturbing. The U.S. Congress is funding a group concerned with regime change around the world supporting candidates like Alexei Navalny, who are essentially just intelligence constructs. So let's hear a bit more about Alexei Navalny's funding in particular. This is from a YouTube channel called The New Atlas. And there's a lot of great information in this video. It's about 35 minutes long. It's called WikiLeaks Reveals Alexei Navalny's Funding as Washington Exploits His Death. So let's check out just a bit of this. Now, let's talk about this polling organization, the Levada Center. It's Moscow-based, so maybe people assume that they're just coming up with a result favorable for Russia. After all, it's based in Moscow. But the truth of the matter is the Levada Center is funded by the U.S. government. The U.S. government uh, not only funds the Levada Center, it funds a whole network of organizations in and around Russia to support the, the, the Russian opposition. So here is the... National Endowment for Democracy's official website, NED.org. This is from September 2011. So this, they have been supporting this organization for a very long time. Russia, polling for democracy, the Yuri Levada Analytical Center. It says the Yuri Levada Analytical Center, an NED grantee based in Moscow, is an independent polling agency that is well known for its surveys on sociopolitical issues, both within Russia and worldwide. If you're funded by the U.S. government, how are you independent? You're dependent on the U.S. government, so how are you an independent organization? It also says, since 2009, the NED has supported four Levada Center research projects focusing on public opinion polling during the 2009 Moscow City, Duma elections, qualitative research on effective public relations strategies for NGOs, a series of interviews on xenophobia and nationalism following the December 2010 riots, and an ongoing project focused on 2011 State Duma and 2012 presidential elections. Could you imagine if the Russian government or the Chinese government were funding an organization like this in the United States, involving itself in America's internal political affairs? Now, the National Endowment for Democracy is uh, a U.S. government-funded and directed organization and it focuses on regime change. If you look at the board of directors, the people 
on the board of directors are people who have been involved in U.S. wars of aggression, regime change operations, and political interference around the globe for decades. The NED was not just funding the Levada Center, it funded a whole host of organizations in and around Russia to interfere inside Russia's internal political affairs. Uh, and, and that includes political organizations associated with, founded by Alexei Navalny. Now, again, I think this video is worth your time. If you're interested in the subject, go check it out. But we're going to skip ahead a little bit to the WikiLeaks section. How do we know that? How do we know that this U.S. State Department cable talking about the orange and res rose-colored revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia? How do we know the U.S. government was involved in those? And what, what are the implications of that, considering we know, because the cable admitted U.S. government is also backing political opposition groups in Russia, all, all to do the same thing, to overthrow the Russian government. How do we know that? Because the Western media admitted it. So this is from The Guardian, 2004, U.S. campaign behind the turmoil in Kiev. So before the 2014 overthrow of the elected government of Ukraine, sponsored openly by the United States, the U.S. tried uh, previously in 2004. And this is what... The Guardian says. It says the campaign is an American creation, a sophisticated and brilliantly conceived exercise in Western branding and mass marketing. I just was talking about marketing. That in four countries in four years has been used to try to salvage rigged elections and topple unsavory regimes. So this is not the Guardian exposing this. This is the Guardian celebrating U.S. interference uh, across Eastern Europe. Funded and organized by the U.S. government, deploying U.S consultancies, pollsters, diplomats, the two big American parties, and U.S. non-governmental organizations. The campaign was first used in Europe in Belgrade in 2000 to beat Slobodan Milosevic at the ballot box. So they interfered in elections there in 2000. Richard Miles, the U.S. ambassador in Belgrade, played a key role. And by last year, as U.S. ambassador in Georgia, he repeat, repeated the trick coaching Mikhail Saakashvili and how to bring down the sitting president. Ten months after the success in Belgrade, the U.S. ambassador in Minsk, Michael Kozak, a veteran of similar operations in Central America, notably in Nicaragua, organized a near-identical campaign to try to defeat the Belarus hardman Alexander Lukashenko. So we have the National Endowment for Democracy supporting these efforts. We have the National Endowment for Democracy supporting the efforts of Alexei Navalny, and we have the National Endowment for Democracy directly funding Bellingcat. All of these intersect with the American government, with the uniparty government, the evil twin faction in America, doing the work of the same global regime. They overthrow nations using the same playbook. They destabilize nations. They infiltrate. They implement their agenda, and when the people of that nation are finally angry enough at what is going on in their country, and they are ready to stand up against the regime, the regime just repeats the playbook and destabilizes the country, further infiltrates, and then further implements their agenda. This playbook happens over and over again in countries all around the world, on slightly different timelines, and with different variations customized to the individual countries. 
And of course, that's exactly what they intended to do with Alexei Navalny. And I would argue and will argue by the end of this series that that is what they are doing with Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalny. So it should be clear by this point that Alexei Navalny is essentially a creation of the United States government, the State Department, our intelligence agencies and foreign intelligence agencies as well. They need a face to the anti-Putin movement and they can't use the Communist Party of Russia to accomplish that. They don't want Putin replaced by Russian communists. They want Putin replaced by a government that does the bidding of the global regime. And in order to accomplish that, they need to create a vision of its possibility for the rest of the world. And that means they need a star because they can't legitimately portray a mass people's movement against Vladimir Putin. And they'll say that's because Putin tamps it down. But in reality, it's because that movement just doesn't exist. There is not popular support for that. All right, so let's blast forward to the present and recall the timeline I laid out at the beginning of the episode on Monday, going back in Russia's conflict with Ukraine. We can even just go back to 2014 when the Obama administration overthrew the government in Ukraine and replaced it. At that point, the ethnic civil war in the Donbass began. A year later, Putin took Crimea. And after eight years of ethnic civil war in the Donbass, being waged against Russian-speaking people of Slavic ethnicity, so ethnic Russians, by Ukrainian Nazi battalions who themselves have a very rich history in Ukraine, spanning at least 80 years. But after all of this, Putin finally decided to launch the special military operation, and there were terms for a peaceful negotiation, avoiding conflict, laid out from the very beginning. Putin thought he had an agreement on those terms, and so he pulled troops back from Kiev. Those terms were violated, and the West actually projected his withdrawal from Kiev as a victory for the Ukrainian forces when it was nothing of the sort. Putin wanted to be sure that those provinces in the Donbass and Crimea would remain independent from Ukraine. And of course, they have since voted themselves in referenda to become part of Russia. He wanted to make sure that Ukraine would not be joining the EU or NATO. He wanted the demilitarization of the corrupt pro-Western regime in Kyiv, and he wanted the denazification of Ukraine. But the regime felt that that would be too much for their proxy state to give up. So now we have had this quote unquote war being waged for two years. We are just days away from the two year anniversary. In that time, we've been told that the very brave Ukrainians would be defending their sovereign borders. We've seen just numerous, obviously false stories being projected to Western audiences in order to convince them to continue to support this war effort in Ukraine. We were told Russia was going to cause a nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. That made no sense. Then we were told they would cause a nuclear disaster at Zaporozhye, a nuclear power plant that they had taken over and are still running to this day. We were told about Snake Island, totally fake. We were told about the ghost of Kiev, totally fake. We were told about the maternity hospital that was also totally fake. And that was created by Bellingcat. We were told the Nazis weren't Nazis because the comedic actor who led them was reportedly Jewish. So therefore they couldn't be Nazis. And if they were, at least they weren't the bad kind of Nazis. 
We had American politicians wearing Ukraine flag lapel pins. We had people across America hanging Ukraine flags on the outside of their homes, putting Ukraine flag emojis in their profile names on social media. Supporting Ukraine was a major cultural trend. The comedic actor and his wife had photo shoots in Vogue or Vanity Fair or whatever. Zelensky went all around the world speaking in front of the legislatures of different countries, begging everyone for money, telling them how important it was to defeat the brutal dictator after he launched his brutal invasion. Sean Penn gave him an Oscar. Bono and U2 played a concert for him in a subway. The worst thing to come out of a subway since their pedophile spokesman, Jared, and of course, Jussie Smollett. And that was the rah-rah phase of 2022. Well, that faded, but they had to bring it back. So we were told there would be a spring counteroffensive, then a spring-summer counteroffensive, then a summer counteroffensive. And well, the counteroffensive never really materialized. If it happened, it didn't work. And we knew that would happen very early on because, of course, the plans for the counteroffensive were leaked by a young National Guardsman on a Discord server, we are told. The entire thing has been a disaster, and most losing sides would be looking for a way out, but not this global regime because this is one of their strongholds, one of their most important proxy states. In fact, in some ways, it's their ancestral homeland. They can't just give up, so they keep going. And if they don't keep going, then the entire money laundering system will just fall apart. They need this $60 billion they've been pressing for. And of course, they have future proxy wars, one in Israel, one in Taiwan. They need more money and they are willing to pretend they're going to do something about their global migration plan as a trade-off for getting that money. All of these things are converging and coming to a head at this point. And so it's awfully shocking that Alexei Navalny's death comes at such a strange time and in such a strange manner. So we heard about Navalny's death on Friday morning and news of his death came as a result of his death being posted on the prison's website and then being taken down following a pattern we have witnessed before. In fact, we just witnessed it when Fonnie Willis released her indictment last August that day. Elements of the indictment were posted on the court's website and then taken down. And people said, well, that's not the real indictment. And later that night, we had a primetime television show where Fonnie Willis came out to tell the nation about the indictment. But the impact of the television show had already been blunted. And I think that's what we see here as well. I don't think that news of Alexei Navalny's reported death was supposed to have originated with a post on the prison's website. Now, obviously, I can't prove that, but what I can do is lay out a series of events that suggest a pattern here and lead me to believe that news of Navalny's death was not broken the way they had intended. Now, I mentioned on Monday that Biden's remarks on Navalny's death were already prepared. He was already scheduled to go out and give them. And indeed, he did go out and give them without any additional confirmation of the death. And he wasn't the only person to speak under those terms. Even his wife at the Munich Security Conference did not know whether or not it was true at the time that Alexei Navalny had died. She got up before the Munich Security Conference and made a speech about his death and how they are going to fight on without knowing that he was actually dead. We're talking about her 
husband. She didn't know whether or not he died. And she went up in front of the Munich security conference that she was attending for some reason and gave a fairly well composed performance speaking about the man she loved, the father of her children, who may or may not be dead. Now, it's my belief that all of this is part of an elaborate information operation. And so I want to lay out all of these events that are happening at the same time involving Russia, involving Ukraine, involving Navalny, and the purpose of these communications and these events in terms of the achievement of the ultimate goal which is to fund the war, prolong the war, and remove Vladimir Putin from power, allowing the global regime to seize control of Russia. Consider how this looks in the good twin, evil twin perspective, understanding that everything is at least two things. Every country has that good twin and evil twin faction within it. And what matters is which of those factions is actually controlling the nation. If you have Russia and China, actively working against the agenda of the global regime and the United States potentially joining them in working against the agenda of the global regime, already having locked in relationships through BRICS with countries around the world like Brazil, India, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the list goes on. These are major nations and you fear losing the U.S. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to have to take back some of these big, powerful nations. And Russia, being the ultimate enemy, must be attacked in whatever ways they can muster. They are running out of time. In the days just prior to Navalny's death, we had Tucker Carlson interviewing Vladimir Putin, giving the perspective of Vladimir Putin to the rest of the world, conflicting with every element of the global regime's propaganda media and what they have told us about all of these situations for years now. We had the controversy over whether or not Zeluzny would be fired by Zelensky, the commander-in-chief of the military. The comedic actor decided to fire him, and Zeluzny basically said, no, I'm not fired. And it seemed for a second like there might be some military coup. Then the queen of the color revolution herself, Victoria Newland, landed in Ukraine, overthrowing the country in 2014, an effort she spearheaded, didn't quite finish the job. So she needed to get back over there and give some hands on attention. So she went to Ukraine, gave a statement to like one member of the press outside in the middle of the night. There was very little detail beyond that. But within the next few days, Zaluzny was gone and replaced. And in the middle of all this chaos and controversy, one week ago, Wednesday the 14th, we began getting very strange reports about a Russian threat to national security as relayed by Congressman Mike Turner. This is the article from The Hill. House Intel Chair calls on Biden to declassify details on serious national security threat. House Intelligence Chair Mike Turner made a cryptic call for President Biden to declassify information about a, quote, serious national security threat, end quote, to allow for public discussions about how the U.S. should respond. But Turner's call was largely out of step with other voices in Congress who said the matter, while serious, was no call for alarm. The ranking member on the panel, Representative Jim Himes, Democrat of Connecticut, said it was not one of great urgency and, quote, people should not panic. 
In his statement, Mike Turner said, Today, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a serious national security threat. I am requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat. The Hill says lawmakers were mum about the contents of the intelligence amid reports it related to the potential for Russian aggression from space. ABC News reported Wednesday that the intelligence concerned Russian plans to use nuclear weapons in space to target U.S. satellites. CNN also reported Wednesday that the intelligence in question relates to Russia, while Politico reported Tuesday that it's related to space. And the article goes on. So Representative Mike Turner out of nowhere comes out and tells us he's demanding that President Biden declassify intelligence about a Russian national security threat that happens to involve space and nukes. Russia is going to nuke us from outer space, essentially, or they're going to nuke satellites, making it impossible for us to communicate. Maybe this will be the blackout that has been subject of so much myth and folklore. And by the way, I am not trying to minimize the potential for that to occur. I definitely think that there is a possibility that we could have power knocked out for a day, a couple of days, an extended period. I don't know. I doubt it's going to be forever. But anything beyond a few days starts creating some real havoc. And without panicking or going overboard, it might be advisable to prepare yourself just a little bit, which for most people means gathering some supplies, some candles, some flashlights, some batteries, just in case. Some food that will not spoil. Some ammo. If you're in a major blue city, you may want to think about places that you can easily leave to. There are sensible precautions and preparations to consider. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to take electricity and running water for granted. These are things that we rely on completely. Things we expect to be there all the time, even while knowing that there's no guarantee they will be. But let's get back to the Russian space nukes, because here's where it gets weird, which is a strange thought to have after you have just said the phrase Russian space nukes. But this is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan answering questions about the so-called national security threat from the White House briefing room. I reached out uh, earlier this week to the Gang of Eight uh, to offer myself for a, up for a personal briefing to the Gang of Eight. And in fact, we scheduled a briefing for the four House members of the Gang of Eight tomorrow. Uh, that's been on the books. So I am a bit surprised that Congressman Turner came out publicly today in advance of a meeting on the books for me to go sit with him alongside our intelligence and defense professionals tomorrow. That's his choice to do that. All I can tell you is that I'm focused on going to see him, sit with him, as well as the other House members of the Gang of Eight tomorrow. And I'm not in a position to say anything further from this podium at this time, other than to make the broad point that this administration has gone further uh, and in more creative, more strategic ways, dealt with the declassification declassification of intelligence in the national interest of the United States than any administration in history. Uh, so you definitely are not going to find an unwillingness to do that when it's in our national security interest to do so. At the same time, we, of course, have to 
continue to prioritize and focus very much on the issue of sources and methods. We'll do that. Ultimately, these are decisions for the president to make. But in the meantime, the most important thing is we have the opportunity to sit in a classified setting and have the kind of conversation uh, with the House intelligence leadership that I, in fact, had scheduled before uh, Congressman Turner went out today. So Jake Sullivan there is sounding a little bit disappointed. He had a meeting on the books for Thursday of last week with the Gang of Eight and particularly the four House members of the Gang of Eight. And so that's two members from each party in the House and then in the Senate, and they get special briefings on intelligence matters, telling some corrupt members of the unit party what's going on counts as telling the representatives of the people what's going on, which counts as telling the people what's going on. And therefore, because they follow this chain of communications, they're not actually keeping secrets from the American people. So he has this meeting scheduled for Thursday, and he's confused. Why would Mike Turner come out and demand the declassification of these documents, knowing that the fake administration is the most transparent administration of all time? I mean, they tell the truth about everything. According to Jake Sullivan, he can't imagine why Mike Turner would go out and tell the nation about this. Why would he demand the declassification of these documents, knowing that I, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, am going to meet with him tomorrow? Tomorrow, he's going to know all the information that he wants to know. I set this meeting up. They've known that it's on the books. This was all scheduled for Thursday. But Mike Turner just went out and told the nation, and now everyone's talking about Russian space nukes. In fact, they're making jokes about Russian space nukes. It's like they don't even believe in Russia. I'm just kidding. It's like they don't believe in space or nukes. But hey, Russia is really evil. Russia is so evil that they can conjure space and nukes into existence even if they don't exist. I mean, think about Mike Turner coming out and saying Russian space nukes and now everybody's making fun of space nukes. If he hadn't done that on Thursday, what could have happened is Jake Sullivan could have had this secret meeting in a skiff with the Gang of Eight and then news of that meeting could have leaked to the press and the press would have had a general outline about what the meeting was about. It would have been about a national security threat from Russia in space and their intention to use nuclear weapons, not only to attack us, but to attack the communications infrastructure of the entire world. It might be a worldwide blackout if Russia uses their space nukes. And so let's just come back to the timeline once again, just be really clear about this. The comedic actor is thinking about switching his commander in chief. Victoria Newland arrives, then the commander-in-chief is actually switched. Ukraine has no chance of winning the war. No one believes otherwise, but they're going to fight until the last Ukrainian. And we're going to keep funding them to keep fighting until the last Ukrainian because that money's got to be allocated somewhere. It's got to be moving. The whole plan relies on this money never drying up. There always has to be the guarantee that the full faith and credit will be backing whatever they do. And of course, the full faith and credit of the United States is entirely dependent on the extension of the indentured servitude of all of the people of the country. So they are trying to negotiate for this spending. They're trying to pin it to immigration and they're trying to make sure that the entire country knows that immigration is a crisis now. 
for three plus years, it's been no issue at all, but now it's an absolute crisis. It must be dealt with immediately. And the only way to deal with it is by also allowing them to continue laundering money across the entire world to pay for weapons and trafficking, whatever their criminal organization desires. They're going to say that that money's all going to defend the very brave Ukrainian people. Now, all of this is coming to a head next Friday or the Friday after March 1st, March 8th, two deadlines for spending legislation, and they want to roll all of this spending into that legislation. And as we observed through the negotiations on this spending package over the last few months, we have seen that the terms of their negotiations, which could just simply be called their terms of what they demand from the American people, those have not changed. All that's changed is the amount of hype swirling around all of these spending issues. They need to increase the hype about the immigration problem in order to create pressure on MAGA Republicans to fold and to give in, to have Speaker Mike Johnson bring this spending package to the floor so they can get all of their money passed in a great unipartisan compromise. They need to make sure that everybody knows Putin is the greatest threat to stability in the world. He is an evil man and he must be taken down. And it's especially important to hammer that point home when just the week before Tucker Carlson has gone out and given the world Vladimir Putin unplugged, uncensored. And with that platform, Putin basically obliterates all prior narratives about him and what his desires were. So how do you make Vladimir Putin evil again once everyone has just learned, oh, Vladimir Putin doesn't seem that evil? Well, a good way to do it would be to convince everybody that Vladimir Putin is threatening not only the United States of America, but the entire world with Russian space nukes. And a day after that, the world finds out that he just assassinated his most credible political opposition. That was the narrative bomb that was supposed to blow up last week. Thursday, they were supposed to tell the world about the threat of Russian space nukes. And then Friday morning, Vladimir Putin was going to be responsible for the assassination of Alexei Navalny in a Siberian prison. I am convinced that that is the counterfactual world that they planned for us to live in if only they had been able to successfully complete the information operation as designed, and they weren't because of these false starts. The mainstream media was supposed to report the details leaked from this meeting in the skiff from the Gang of Eight. Now, it wouldn't be any of the people in the Gang of Eight leaking classified intelligence to the press, and it certainly wouldn't be anyone from the fake administration, but the details would leak nonetheless. They would cite unnamed sources familiar with the agenda of the meeting. They wouldn't have details, but they would know about Russian space nukes and they could let everyone else fill in the details with the understanding that whatever the details are, this is the scariest threat we've ever faced. And then the next day, the world gets the news of the assassination. That is quite the one-two narrative punch. And as we go through this, I think you'll see there are even more events that were all supposed to converge at this same point in time. And if that narrative bomb went off, 
It would be their opportunity to get everybody back on the same page when it comes to Russia, when it comes to Russia, Ukraine, and when it comes to funding these fake foreign proxy wars. How was that narrative bomb diffused with these two false starts? Mike Turner demanding the declassification of all information about this national security threat posed by Russian space nukes and the prison website updating on Navalny's death, preempting the announcement of that death at the Munich Security Conference by Navalny's people and perhaps even his wife. If you think that that sounds cold and calculating, well, that's because it is. You might think that his wife could never involve herself in something like this. After all, they displayed how in love they were for years on social media. She would never participate in an info op surrounding her husband's death. They were so in love, in fact, that Navalny's last message anywhere was to his wife on Instagram. And yes, that's correct. He was posting on Instagram from his brutal Siberian prison. He posted a Valentine's Day message just hours before the tragic death. He said, babe, we have everything like in a song. Cities between us, airport runway lights, blue blizzards, and thousands of kilometers. But I feel you are near me every second, and I love you more and more. Nothing says true love like awful poetry on social media apps. Now, I'm not sure if this is something that you have observed yourself many times. People you know writing their little love messages to one another in public on social media attempting to broadcast to the world that their relationship is just so solid and special. That used to happen all the time in Hollywood because people were in relationships to enhance their public image by displaying that they are in love and therefore someone worthy of being loved by the person to whom they are displaying all of this online affection. Now, what I observed in Los Angeles is that the people who constantly do that really don't have very good relationships and are generally headed for a downfall rather soon. So Alexei Navalny and Yulia Navalny are reportedly very much in love. They display their love consistently on social media, and we should assume, therefore, that they are very much in love. And because of that, there is no way that Yulia could have ever been involved in this information operation from the very beginning and her participation in this info op was definitely not why she was attending the Munich Security Conference. She was there because she's a world leader. Oh, no, wait, she's not a world leader. Oh, it's because her husband is a world. No, no, he's not a world leader either. Why was Yulia Navalny at the Munich Security Conference? Now, I'm not a Manchurian candidate, as far as I know, and I am not married to a Manchurian candidate again. <laughs> As far as I know, so I don't know what it's like to be Alexei and Yulia Navalny, but as a normal person who has felt love and pain before, I feel like the last thing I would be doing if my spouse was potentially dead and I didn't know, despite being in a room with all of the most powerful military industrial complex and intelligence community leaders in the entire world. 
I would probably be focused on figuring out whether or not my spouse was dead and engaging in something of a mourning process rather than going out and giving firebrand speeches about how if my spouse is dead, the most important thing we can do is just carry on and keep going. So we will come back to the wife, Yulia, and these two false starts we witnessed last week that, in my view, diffused this narrative bomb. But let's get back to space nukes first. This is from February 15th, NBC News, the headline, Nukes in Space or Nothing New? The Science Behind the Intel Frenzy Over a Russian Weapon. Russia's apparent pursuit of a nuclear space-based weapon has stirred a frenzy in Washington and raised a flurry of questions among a world of scientists and experts. With scant details released from the congressional briefings, it's unclear what sort of weapon the Kremlin may be pursuing and just how bad it would be for the West if President Vladimir Putin does deploy one. Now, let's just pause for a second and think about how insane that is. They have no idea what kind of weapon Vladimir Putin is pursuing, but they also must consider how bad it would be for the West if Vladimir Putin deploys one. One what? This could be an alarming escalation of hostilities reminiscent of the tensest days of the Cold War or a less significant development whose revelation may stem from more mundane domestic concerns than the possibility of nuclear war in space. (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, what are we even talking about at this point, you know? We know very little, and the comments so far have been very, very cryptic, said Bledon Bowen, an associate professor at England's University of Leicester and the author of Original Sin, Power, Technology, and War in Outer Space. Three sources familiar with the matter told NBC News that Russia is developing a nuclear space-based weapon designed to target American satellites. This weapon is not yet operational, the sources said, But the intelligence was enough to prompt Mike Turner, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, to ask the White House to declassify information about an unnamed serious national security threat. The main known unknown, (laughs) publicly at least, is whether this is a space-based nuclear weapon in the most conventional sense of the term, nuclear warheads, atomic reactions, mushroom clouds, Or if, as many experts suspect, this is a nuclear-powered satellite-carrying electronic weapons which could cause havoc on Earth by crippling satellites that drive everything from weather forecasting and phone calls to wars and the global economy. So it's either a nuclear warhead or it's a nuclear-powered satellite capable of taking out other satellites. Kind of a big difference. If it is the former actual space nukes. (laughs) That would be a violation of the United Nations Outer Space Treaty of 1967. One of its clauses says that countries are not allowed to, quote, place nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction in orbit or on celestial bodies or station them in outer space in any other manner. Thank goodness we have the United Nations to defend us. 
Now, this article is long and a bit silly, as you can see, so I'm just going to hit a couple more points. Other experts reading between the lines of the reports believe that this weapon system would be nuclear powered rather than nuclear armed. There's also been speculation that this is all linked to a classified Russian satellite named Cosmos 2575 launched last week. The article quotes Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who said it is obvious that the White House is trying by hook or by crook to push Congress to vote on the bill to allocate money. We'll see what tricks the White House will resort to. And I think that we're already seeing a bunch of them. So the story of Mike Turner's demands for the Biden administration to declassify information on this national security threat that I believe was a false start, taking the air out of Jake Sullivan's meeting that was scheduled for the next day. That came a day after this story from Reuters, February 13th, Putin's suggestion of Ukraine ceasefire rejected by United States, sources say. Russian President Vladimir Putin's suggestion of a ceasefire in Ukraine to freeze the war was rejected by the United States after contacts between intermediaries. Three Russian sources with knowledge of the discussions told Reuters the failure of Putin's approach ushers in a third year of the deadliest conflict in Europe since World War II and illustrates just how far apart the world's two largest nuclear powers remain. Now, I'm not sure how that's a failure in Putin's approach. He is calling for a ceasefire and the U.S. is rejecting it. Apparently, they don't like that approach. I don't know what it is they expect. Maybe they just expect Putin to give up and retreat after two years of nonstop winning. It's always amusing to me that the global regime believes everyone around the world just can't wait to play their part in the global regime's agenda. They get absolutely furious with anyone who will not do as they're supposed to. Reuters writes, a U.S. source denied there had been any official contact and said Washington would not engage in talks that did not involve Ukraine. Putin sent signals to Washington in 2023 in public and privately through intermediaries, including Moscow's Arab partners in the Middle East and others, that he was ready to consider a ceasefire in Ukraine, the Russian sources said. Putin was proposing to freeze the conflict at the current lines and was unwilling to cede any of the Ukrainian territory controlled by Russia. But the signal offered what some in the Kremlin saw as the best path toward a peace of some kind. And again, there would be no incentive whatsoever for Putin to withdraw from any of these territories because these are the territories that were subject to Ukraine's ethnic civil war for now the last 10 years. These are Slavic people who speak Russian. These are ethnic Russians. Putin is not going to abandon them. And he said that to the entire world in the Tucker Carlson interview. It doesn't matter if you agree with him or not. The fact is, that's his position. And there is no reason to believe that could ever change. The position of the global regime in Ukraine continues to grow weaker. They continue to be embarrassed on the world stage. And part of that is a result of these info ops that keep failing. They try to score points in the public perception against Russia, and every time they do that, it blows up in their faces and backfires, making them look worse, making them look weaker. And like so many other issues that we've been consistently following over the past few years, many of these through lines are now converging. Things are coming to a head. On February 12th, RT, that's Russia Today, 
the website deemed by the global state propaganda media to be Russian state propaganda media. They ran this headline, RT tours secretive former Ukrainian medical research lab. Now we've been told all of that's a conspiracy theory. Therefore, this must be propaganda. But also there's that little problem where the queen of the color revolutions herself, Victoria Newland, said in Senate testimony to Senator Marco Rubio that there were indeed U.S. Defense Department funded biolabs in Ukraine. The Russian city of Mariupol was a test bed for large scale medical research on local civilians while under Ukrainian rule. A trove of recently discovered documents suggests now Mariupol, according to American press, is part of Ukraine. You can go on Google Maps right now and see that Mariupol is still within the borders of Ukraine as the borders are drawn on Google Maps. But that just simply doesn't matter at all. Mariupol is now part of Russia and Russia's not shy about saying it. It's right here on RT, the Russian city of Mariupol. The article is about what happened there while it was part of Ukraine. RT's Steve Sweeney visited a disused psychiatric ward in the city, which has been undergoing rapid reconstruction after being incorporated into Russia following a referendum in late 2022. In December of last year, a construction team made a shocking discovery at the disused ward, finding documents as well as medication and medical equipment related to secretive research conducted while the city was part of Ukraine. The experiments took place for years in at least eight medical facilities across Mariupol, with leading Western biotech corporations allegedly benefiting from them, according to the documents. We've found documents that suggested thousands of people have been involved in the experiments with the trials carried out for major pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Sanofi, GlaxoSmithKline and others. Blood and other samples were collected and then sent to labs and clinics in Europe and the U.S. for testing, the results of which are unknown, Sweeney explained. The research was not only conducted on adults, but also on children and babies, the documents suggest. As well as being ethically questionable, the experiments on minors likely made the clinical trials illegal, a Russian doctor told RT on condition of anonymity. While it's difficult to track all the participants of the experiments, witnesses are now coming forward with their testimonies about the research. A local man whose mother took part in the trials claimed the research was not safe. My mother got sick. They gave her drugs. I asked what medication she was taking, but she did not give me a clear answer. She said that the drugs were simply given from a white box. Her condition worsened over the course of a month, and then she died, the man told Sweeney. A week later, also on RT, February 19th, Ukraine has used U.S.-made chemical weapons, according to Russia. Washington and Kyiv have violated articles of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons as Ukrainian forces have used illegal munitions on the battlefield. Russian Lieutenant General Igor Kirilov has claimed the head of Russia's nuclear, chemical and biological protection forces provided several examples of Kyiv's alleged use of banned chemical weapons and non-lethal chemical agents that he said were obtained from the U.S. Kirilov claimed that Ukraine used drones to drop 
U.S. made gas grenades on December 28th, 2023, containing CS compound, a chemical classified as a riot control tool that irritates the eyes and upper respiratory tract and can cause skin burns, respiratory paralysis, and cardiac arrests when used in high concentrations. He said the delivery of such munitions by the U.S. to Ukraine was a direct violation of the rules of the OPCW, which states that a country must, quote, never under any circumstances transfer chemical weapons directly or indirectly to anyone. Skipping ahead. Kirillov said Russian intelligence believes that Ukraine's forces under the guidance of its Western backers are developing a new military tactic that would use a, quote, chemical belt. This would involve blowing up containers with hydrocyanic acid and ammonia to prevent an advance by Russian forces. He added that plans for such a large scale use of toxic chemicals were evidenced by the fact that Kiev had asked the EU to supply it with hundreds of thousands of antidotes, gas masks and other personal protective equipment in 2024. That's in addition to 600,000 ampules of organophosphorus antidotes and 750,000 bottles of drugs for the detoxification of mustard gas, lewisite, and hydrocyanic acid derivatives that were supplied by NATO countries in 2023. It is obvious that the volumes requested by Ukraine are excessive for a country that does not have chemical weapons, Kirillov stated. So the global regime, the West, is blaming Russia for poisoning multiple times Alexei Navalny with a nerve agent that was found in some of these Ukrainian biolabs while they are dealing with their own Ukrainian biolab problem. And let's continue with the provocations of the global regime and sadly, the United States of America. This is from the Belarusian website, Belta. This is a news service that is said to be the state media of Belarus. The headline from yesterday, the 20th, Lukashenko. Western special services are preparing provocation in Poland. And that is how Lukashenko and how Vladimir Putin refers to the U.S. State Department and intelligence services. Polish and American intelligence are preparing a provocation in Poland. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said at a large meeting with the senior staff of the national security agencies in Minsk on 20 February, Belta has learned. We publicize as best we can all the information obtained by our intelligence about various kinds of provocations, extremist actions with the involvement of militants from Ukraine, Poland and Lithuania. Now we will continue this tradition. Here's one more piece of operational information. I quote verbatim, this is important for the Poles. Polish and U.S. intelligence are preparing a large-scale provocation against the Polish civilian population, which they will blame on Russia and Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko said. Simultaneously, Warsaw is trying to recruit high-ranking Belarusian officials to replace the current Belarusian opposition figures, the president said. They will look for and nurture new figures, loyal to the West and more effective. They will use all methods, from garden-variety bribery and blackmail, to threats to the life and health of these people and their loved ones. Anyone can get on their radar. 
And consider what he just said. Consider what he is doing as the leader of a country. He is telling all of the people in every country associated with this incident what Western intelligence services plan to do. According to Lukashenko, they were planning a quote unquote large scale provocation, essentially a false flag event against the Polish civilian population that was meant to be blamed on Russia and Belarus. They are trying to destabilize the region and trigger Article 5 of NATO, which would mean that the U.S. would then have a predicate to get involved in the conflict directly. But that's not their only goal. Their other goal is to overthrow the leadership of Belarus because Lukashenko is an ally of Vladimir Putin. And they want to do that by standing up puppet figures who could fill a new regime-controlled government. The same thing they've done multiple times now in Ukraine and the same thing they've done in other countries in that region as we have gone through. This is the color revolution playbook playing out in cycles in countries all across the world with slight variations customized to the individual countries. And if that's not enough, we have this also from Monday. This is NBC News. Biden administration is leaning towards supplying Ukraine with long range missiles. After months of requests from Ukrainian officials, the Biden administration is working toward providing Ukraine with powerful new long range ballistic missiles, according to two U.S. officials. Late last year, the U.S. began to supply Ukraine with Army tactical missile systems known as ATACMS, A-T-A-C-M-S. But so far, it has provided only the older medium-range attackums. Now the U.S. is leaning toward sending the longer-range version of the missile, the officials said, which would allow Ukraine to strike farther inside the Russian-held Crimean Peninsula. Now, for the last two years, the global regime has been talking about how they plan to take Crimea back from Russia, and there has never been any possibility of that being true. They bombed the Crimean bridge and tried to blame it on Russia. And for that matter, we haven't really mentioned the Nord Stream pipeline, nor have we mentioned the car bombing of the daughter of who many believe is Putin's philosophical advisor, Alexander Dugin. All of these were acts of terrorism by the Kyiv regime in coordination with global regime intelligence services. That is the U.S. of A. directing terrorist attacks on the infrastructure of other nations. Do you appreciate that sort of thing being done in your name? I personally do not. And they're all pretending they didn't actually do it. So they seem to know it's not a very good idea for the world to know they've done it either, which should provide an insight into whether or not that sort of thing should be done. If Congress approves more funding for Ukraine, the U.S. could include the long-range attackums in one of the first packages of military aid paid for with that money, according to the two U.S. officials. The U.S. also has ammunition and artillery ready to send to Ukraine immediately if the funding is approved, the officials added. The officials did not rule out asking allies to provide the missiles to Ukraine as well and replenishing their attackum stockpiles. In a statement, a Defense Department spokesperson said, without a supplemental funding bill, we do not currently have a security package to give to Ukraine. At the same time, I won't speculate on the contents of any future packages if a supplemental were to be passed. We will let you know if this changes and if we have a new package to announce. 
Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitro Kuleba said that he spent much of his meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Munich on Saturday discussing Ukraine's need for longer range weapons. There is only one way to destroy Russian capabilities in Ukraine. It's to hit deep into occupied territories, bypassing Russian radio electronic warfare and interceptors, he said, referring to long range attackums. And you got to wonder how Russia's nuclear powered satellites might play into that. We also had panicky reports last week of Russians in Ukrainian territory using Starlink for Internet. And of course, this is a rerun of prior stories. They want Elon Musk to seem like he is allied with evil, brutal dictator Vladimir Putin. Elon Musk, the American defense contractor working against American interests by allowing Starlink to fall into the wrong hands and still allowing Starlink to provide Internet after the technology had fallen into the wrong hands, as if somehow Elon Musk should be tasked with turning off individual Starlink systems. And while that idea in relation to Ukraine is not convincing to anyone because most Americans want nothing to do with Ukraine any longer, they also released a story last week of Starlink satellite technology helping out cartels and human traffickers south of the border. Starlink is now being blamed for part of the immigration problem. It's like they really, really want to eliminate the option of Starlink's internet service, making it seem like they're worried. What if Starlink internet is available to people who we don't want having internet? I mean, it sounds bad that the cartels would be using it to advance their operations, but shouldn't we be kind of at least a little comforted at the idea that Starlink internet could be available even to those people who quote unquote shouldn't have internet? Because that means it would be available to us even in the event that internet access became unavailable through other means. Kuleba called the systems an important symbol to Ukrainians. If you want to hit behind the lines, disrupt their logistics and supplies, destroy their depots of ammunition, you can only do it with long-range missiles. The Biden administration has resisted sending the long-range missiles over the past two years because officials worried Ukraine would use them to strike inside Crimea or Russia and cause Russian President Vladimir Putin to escalate the conflict. White House and Pentagon officials have expressed similar concerns about other weapon systems but have now decided to provide them to Ukraine. On Saturday, Kuleba also described an urgent need for more European weapons and assistance for Ukraine, saying many people in Europe are, quote, still reluctant to understand the threat, end quote. When a citizen of Europe reads in the news that Ukraine retreated from Avdiivka, he should realize one simple fact. Russia has got a few kilometers closer to his own home. Every advance Russia makes in Ukraine brings Russian weapons closer to the home of a middle class European. So this is the Ukrainian foreign minister essentially threatening every normal citizen of Europe. If you don't do everything you can to support our fight against Vladimir Putin, well, that's going to mean Vladimir Putin inches ever closer to your own home. What a preposterous threat that is. 
Kuleba praised support from European allies, but said they need to speed up production of weapons and ammunition for Ukraine. It took Europeans too much time to start ramping up or waking up or dusting off their defense industries, he said. We will pay with our lives throughout 2024 to give your defense industries time to ramp up production or new lines. But one person who will not be paying with his life is Dimitro Kaleba. This is just the same line we've heard now for two years. All of these brave Ukrainians will just keep on dying until you give us what we want. That is not a war being fought to protect the brave people of Ukraine. That is a hostage negotiation. And Kuleba mentions the retreat from Avdiivka. So not only did we not get the spring, spring, summer or summer counteroffensives last year that changed the whole shape of the Russia-Ukraine war, they're actually losing ground right now while continuing to make these big commitments, these big threats. This is from the New York Times on Saturday. Avdiivka, longtime stronghold for Ukraine, falls to Russians. This is the New York Times. Ukraine ordered the complete withdrawal from the decimated city of Avdiivka before dawn on Saturday surrendering a position that had been a military stronghold for the better part of a decade in the face of withering Russian assault. The better part of a decade. Wait, what? I thought this war was only two years old. That's what normies out there have been convinced of by the media for the last two years, while we've all been talking about an ethnic civil war that has been waged in the Donbass since 2014 as a result of the Obama administration overthrowing the Ukrainian government with the Maidan revolution. But this has been their stronghold for a decade, and now they've lost it. And despite that, we have to help Ukraine win. I mean, all of this is insane. Based on the operational situation around Avdiivka, in order to avoid encirclement and preserve the lives and health of servicemen, I decided to withdraw our units from the city and move to defense on more favorable lines. General Oleksandr Sirsky, Ukraine's top military commander, said in a statement issued overnight. Now, this is the guy who replaced Zeluzny. He has been Ukraine's top military commander for all of two weeks. The fall of Avdiivka, a city that was once home to some 30,000 people, but is now a smoking ruin, is the first major gain Russian forces have achieved since May of last year. So they have not accomplished anything in nine months, we are told. Why don't they ever describe Ukraine in those terms? Why don't they ever say that Ukraine has made zero advances in the entire time? They are trying to make Russia sound weak while announcing another Russian victory. And this is our paper of record. This is the very elite, very serious New York Times. After rebuffing a Ukrainian counteroffensive in the summer and fall. See that? It was a summer and fall counteroffensive. Russian forces in recent weeks have been pressing the attack across nearly the entire length of the 600-mile front. How is that possible? They must have so many forces. Ukraine can't even find people to fight in their army. The average age of their soldiers is 43 years old. Russia is attacking along a 600 mile long front. 
The Ukrainian withdrawal on Saturday follows a bloody endgame that saw some of the fiercest fighting of the two-year-old war. Relying on its superiority in personnel and weaponry, Russia pounded the city with aerial bombardments and ground assaults, even as its fighters suffered a staggering amount of casualties. And we're just going to have to take their word for that. Outgunned Ukrainian forces had begun withdrawing from positions in the southern part of the city on Wednesday and since then have been engaged in a desperate battle to avoid encirclement inside the city as Russian forces advanced from multiple directions. As Russian bombers pummeled Avdiivka, Ukraine said its forces have targeted and shot down three Russian warplanes. Maybe the mythical ghost of Kiev has returned. Remember when we were told that Ukraine was going to close the sky? Remember that? Volodymyr Zelensky, that phrase he used in his appearances before the governments of the world asking them for help. We need to close the sky. Please give us planes, even though our pilots can't fly them. We had Adam Kinzinger and other ridiculous morons sitting as illegitimate members of our Congress demanding that planes be sent over, that we have a no-fly zone, knowing that Russia would violate it, and then we could have all-out war. We were told that the ghost of Kiev was shooting down Russian warplanes, but of course, that was just video game footage. That entire story was just completely made up. The retreat of the Ukrainians from Avdiivka was said to be chaotic and dangerous. A lot of the reporting in this New York Times article comes from Radio Liberty, who we discussed yesterday. Let's skip down in the article. As the battle for Avdiivka intensified, Ukrainian commanders fighting in the area were forced to ration ammunition, soldiers said. White House officials have seized on similar accounts to assert that the failure to pass a $60 billion renewed military aid package in Congress was directly undermining the Ukrainians' fight on the ground. So see, MAGA Republicans, it is your fault that all of these Ukrainians are dying despite the fact that you were against this war from the beginning and despite the fact that Putin has had peace negotiations on the table the entire time and thought a deal had been reached at the beginning that would have avoided all this conflict. It's not the fault of the global regime or the quote-unquote leaders in Ukraine, certainly not the fault of our leaders here in the American Uniparty that all of these Ukrainians are dying. It's Vladimir Putin's fault, and it's our fault for not pushing the Congress to continue sending them money forever. The Ukrainian government is also struggling to recruit and mobilize soldiers to fill its depleted ranks after two years of often brutal fighting. Avdiivka and the surrounding communities have been on the front line ever since Russian-backed militants seized territory in eastern Ukraine in 2014. But the Russians stepped up their efforts to take the city in October, launching large-scale assaults to broadly encircle the area. So the people who were the victims of the ethnic civil war in the Donbass, led by the Kyiv regime and their Ukrainian Nazi battalions, those people are being referred to as Russian-backed militants who seized territory. So apparently now the New York Times is aware that the conflict has been ongoing since 2014, and they want us to know that it is actually the fault of those people in the Donbass. They should have allowed the Kyiv regime to brutally terrorize them with Nazi battalions. 
Those attempts largely failed and resulted in some of the heaviest Russian losses of the war, with tens of thousands of its soldiers killed and wounded, according to the Ukrainian military, as well as British and American officials. And they must be telling the truth. Early this year, the Russians managed to break into the city of Avdiivka itself, at which point Ukrainian losses started to increase significantly. At the same time, Russia stepped up bombardment of the city, seeking to smash heavily fortified Ukrainian defenses. As the situation turned increasingly dire, military analysts inside and outside Ukraine worried that the leadership would repeat what many regarded as a past mistake holding on after it was clear that hope was lost and unnecessarily expending personnel and weapons. And you could describe the entire Ukraine war that way. Holding on after it was clear that all hope was lost and unnecessarily expending personnel and weapons. The withdrawal from Avdiivka was still underway Saturday morning under withering Russian bombardment. The Ukrainian military command said the withdrawal from the southern part of the city had been conducted with minor losses. And then they go on to blame Russia for an attack on a chemical plant that they will absolutely use in the future to claim that Russia was waging chemical warfare the same way they tried to propose a nuclear threat at Chernobyl and then probably five or six times now at Zaporozhia over the past two years. So these are all major events converging at the same point on a timeline that just happens to mark a point a month prior to the Russian election and a couple weeks later, what should be the Ukrainian election, but won't be. We get stories about weapons and supplies lost to the black market, financial aid to Ukraine being laundered to oligarchs, disappearing to who knows where, Volodymyr Zelensky firing his top military commander, the commander refusing, Victoria Newland arriving, the commander finally leaving and being replaced, Tucker Carlson releases his interview with Vladimir Putin, new evidence of bio labs, threats of long-range missiles being delivered, a retreat from Avdiivka, Mike Turner's false start ruining what could have been a massive national story about a potential Russian threat involving nukes from outer space. A day later, we get news about the death of Alexei Navalny and his wife, who doesn't know whether or not it's true, goes out to deliver a message at the Munich Security Conference while Ukraine is in the midst of another devastating defeat. While in the background, the issue of further funding for Ukraine plays out in American politics. But let's focus back in on Navalny's death. Here is the fake president of the United States, Joe Biden, in his remarks that he gave before it was confirmed that Alexei Navalny actually died. Good afternoon. I, uh, I'm heading off to East Palestine at the moment, but I wanted to say a few things this morning about uh, Alexei Navalny. You know, like millions of people around the world, I'm literally both not surprised and outraged by the news. Reported death of Alexei Navalny. He bravely stood up uh, to the corruption, the violence, and the, the, all, the, all the bad things that the Putin government was doing. In response, Putin had him poisoned, he had him arrested, he had him prosecuted for fabricated crimes, 
He's sentenced to prison. He was held in isolation. Even all that didn't stop him from calling out Putin's lies. Even in prison, he was a powerful voice for the truth, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. And he could have lived safely in exile after the assassination attempt on him in 2020, which nearly killed him, I might add. And But he, uh, he was traveling outside the country at the time. Instead, he returned to Russia, returned to Russia, knowing he'd likely be imprisoned or even killed if he continued his work. But he did it anyway because he believed so deeply in his country, in Russia. Reports of his death, if they're true, and I have no reason to believe it or not, Russian authorities are going to tell their own story. But make no mistake, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world. Putin does not only target his citizens of other countries, as we've seen in what's going on in Ukraine right now. He also inflicts terrible crimes on his own people. And as people across Russia and around the world are mourning Navalny today, because he was so many things that Putin was not. He was brave. He was principled. He was dedicated to building a Russia where the rule of law existed and where it applied to everybody. Navalny believed in that Russia, that Russia. He knew it was a cause worth fighting for and obviously even dying for. This tragedy reminds us of the stakes of this moment. We have to provide the funding so Ukraine can keep defending itself against Putin's vicious onslaughts and war crimes. You know, there was a bipartisan Senate vote that passed overwhelmingly in the United States Senate to fund Ukraine. Now, as I've said before, and I mean this in a literal, will never be forgotten. It's going to go down in the pages of history. It really is. It's consequential. And the clock is ticking. And this has to happen. We have to help now. You know, we have to realize what we're dealing with with Putin. All of us should reject the dangerous statements made by the previous president that invited Russia to invade our NATO allies if they weren't paying up. He said if an ally did not pay their dues, he'd encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want. I guess I should clear my mind here a little bit and not say what I'm really thinking. But let me be clear. This is an outrageous thing for a president to say. I can't fathom. I can't fathom. From Truman on, they're rolling over in their graves hearing this. As long as I'm president, America stands by our sacred commitment to our NATO allies, as they have stood by their commitments to us repeatedly. Putin and the whole world should know if any adversary were to attack us, our NATO allies would back us. And if Putin were to attack a NATO ally, the United States will defend every inch of NATO territory. Now's the time for even greater unity among our NATO allies. All right. So if Alexei Navalny is dead and he doesn't know if he is or not, but he has no reason to believe he's not. So if it is, it is definitely, definitely Vladimir Putin's fault. No matter what happened, if Alexei Navalny happens to be alive, it is still Vladimir Putin's fault for killing him. Vladimir Putin killed Alexei Navalny, whether or not Alexei Navalny is actually dead. 
And that's the real president of the United States saying that. I mean, that's the guy who received 81 million real lawful American votes. He wants you to know that because Putin murdered this guy who might be dead, there is now even a greater necessity to commit the American people to an extension of their indentured servitude to the tune of $60 billion for now that we have to give to Ukraine. I mean, if we don't stop Putin dead in his tracks right now, he might just continue murdering, maybe, as many Manchurian candidates as the West decides to stand up. I mean, as President Biden says, come on, man, not a joke, not a joke, not a joke. Lindsey Graham gets it. He was frothing mad. He was in the same mindset he was very likely in back in 2014 when he was in Kiev with John McCain palling around with Ukrainian Nazis. Is that true? Of course it's true. Just look into it. You can find pictures of John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Amy Klobuchar, for that matter, hanging out with Ukrainian Nazis in Kiev in 2014. And while you're at it, you might also want to research whether or not there are connections between John McCain and Ukrainian Nazis and that whole Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. I wonder if John McCain believed there were very fine people on both sides. But here is John McCain's former shadow who has outlasted no name himself. And as to as to what happened in Russia with Navalny, Navalny was one of the bravest people I ever met. When he went back to Russia, he, he had to know he was going to be killed by Putin and he was murdered by Putin. So what why don't we do this? I just got off the phone with uh, two Democratic senators. Let's make Russia state sponsored terrorism under U.S. law. Let's make them pay a price for killing Navalny. It would allow the Navalny family to go to U.S. court and sue Putin's Russia for killing of their loved one. A state sponsor of terrorism designation is a game changer. It would allow more sanctions. It would open up the American courtroom. Do you expect legislation on that this week? Yes, absolutely. President Biden told Putin, if something happens to Bali, you're going to pay a price. President Biden, I agree with you. The price they should pay is to make Russia a state sponsor of terrorism like Iran, Cuba, and North Korea. They deserve this designation. Uh, Putin's been killing people, opposition leaders, for decades now. He's dismembered Syria. He's one of the world's worst actors. He's an indicted war criminal. So Lindsey Graham wants more war, but he also wants more sanctions. That was Lindsey Graham on Sunday on CBS's Face the Nation. Here is ABC News. Just yesterday, February 20th, Russia to get hit with major sanctions in response to Navalny's death, U.S. says. So they began seeding the threats of all of this before they knew that Navalny was actually dead. Lindsey Graham went out on one of the Sunday shows and made his pitch this weekend. And now we have the results. It's almost as if it was all planned beforehand. The White House will announce a new major sanctions package on Friday to hold Russia accountable for the death of Alexei Navalny, the longtime Russian opposition politician and critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said. Whatever story the Russian government decides to tell the world, it's clear that President Putin and his government are responsible for Mr. Navalny's death. 
In response and at President Biden's direction, we will be announcing a major sanctions package on Friday of this week to hold Russia accountable for what happened to Mr. Navalny. Kirby did not go into detail about what the new sanctions package would include, but noted the sanctions will also work to hold Russia accountable for its ongoing war with Ukraine. Now, they tried to sanction Russia at the beginning of the special military operation. They took them off the SWIFT system. They tried to wage economic warfare on the people of Russia, and it failed. Russia's currency got stronger. Russia has its currency alliance with the BRICS coalition. Russian sanctions have been a spectacular failure, and the Ukraine war has been a spectacular failure. And that assertion is further supported with the fact that they just retreated from one of their strongholds this weekend. I think what you'll see in this package that we're going to be announcing Friday is a set of sanctions, a regime that not only is designed to hold Mr. Putin accountable for now two years of war in Ukraine, but also specifically supplemented with additional sanctions regarding Mr. Navalny's death, Kirby said. Later Tuesday, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan shed more light on the U.S. move, noting that the administration is timing them to coincide with the two-year anniversary of the start of the conflict. So the sanctions that are going to be levied as a consequence of Mr. Navalny's reported death are also just meant to coincide in their timing with the two-year anniversary of the beginning of this war. So Navalny's death in this context is just a cherry on top of this narrative Sunday. It's just a nice little addition. Hey, we didn't know that Alexei Navalny was going to die at this exact time, but it sure does work out perfectly with the timing of these sanctions that we planned to impose as an anniversary present to Vladimir Putin. Asked about what impact the sanctions would have, Sullivan said the upcoming package was, quote, substantial and covers, quote, a range of different elements of the Russian defense industrial base and sources of revenue for the Russian economy, end quote, that he said power their war machine and ongoing aggression and repression. We believe that will have an impact, he said. There's another turn of the crank, another turn of the wheel, and it is a range of targets a significant range of targets that we have worked persistently and diligently to identify, to continue to impose costs for what Russia has done, for what it's done to the army, for what it's done to Ukraine, and for the threat it represents to international peace and security, Sullivan added. That is just a bunch of nonsense. That is word salad. We're going to punish them. They've been very, very bad, and we're going to punish them just like we punished them the last time. And no, it didn't work. But that doesn't mean we can't keep trying to punish them. The ABC article includes a quote from Biden saying, we don't know exactly what happened, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was the result of something that Putin and his friends did. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said last week that, quote, Russia is responsible for this. Russian spokesman Dmitry Peskov said the allegations were unfounded, unsupported, and boorish. In response to the news of potential sanctions, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs forwarded a post with excerpts from an interview in Newsweek of Russian ambassador to the U.S. Anatoly Antonov. 
listing key points from Antonov. He said, we are adamant sooner or later, peaceful agreements will be achieved against the efforts of Kyiv regime patrons who continue pumping billions of dollars in order to drag out the conflict, bringing misery to thousands of people. He said the first shots were fired by Kyiv Nazis in the spring of 2014. It was them who plunged Odessa into terror and sent tanks and planes against the residents of Donetsk and Lugansk. What seemed like a nightmare became reality. He said it's important to understand for decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia consistently respected the independence and sovereignty of Ukraine. It consistently built relations with the Republic on the basis of generally recognized principles of cooperation and good neighborliness. And Putin talked about this at length in his interview with Tucker Carlson. After the start of the special military operation in the spring of 2022, a negotiation process was launched in Istanbul that could have resulted in a political solution to the crisis. However, pressure from third capitals that were not interested in a diplomatic deal prevented this from happening. And I believe he's referring specifically to the British government and Boris Johnson there. He says the Westerners did everything to deprive Ukraine of its independence and turn it into an anti-Russian bridgehead. Instead of hearing and understanding Russia's key demands, the denazification and demilitarization of Ukrainian thugs, as well as rejection of Russophobia and NATO plans on Kiev, Washington and its satellites are only making things worse. And the Post concludes... There is no prospect of talking to our country from the position of strength and sanctions pressure. The persistent desire to dominate only leads to the opposite effect. And consider the leverage here. The United States is threatening sanctions that they're not going to announce for three more days. Yesterday, they announced they were going to do sanctions. They're not going to disclose what's in the package of sanctions until Friday. What are those three days for? They're trying to create leverage by threatening sanctions, hoping that they will get some concessions from Russia before the sanctions package is announced. That doesn't make any sense. Russia has all the leverage like they've had the entire time. The Kyiv regime and the West and the American Uniparty didn't just start retreating this weekend in Avdiivka. They've been retreating slowly for the last two years, and it has never at any point gone in a different direction, even when they were waging acts of international terrorism against the Nord Stream pipelines, the Crimean Bridge, Dugan's daughter. There has been no point at which the Ukrainian cause has advanced. Now, there are people speaking up in favor of the resolution of this crisis. And Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio was tasked with doing this at the Munich Security Conference. Here's a bit from him over the weekend. I know people have heard what, you know, Trump said and, you know, they've criticized it and they said, well, Trump is going to abandon Europe. I don't think that's true at all. I think Trump is actually issuing a wake up call to say that Europe has to take a bigger role in its own security. Germany just this year will spend more than 2% of GDP. Okay. Uh, That of course is something that we had to really push for in the United States. And it just now has finally cleared that threshold, but it's not just about money spent. How many mechanized brigades, 
aids could Germany feel tomorrow? Maybe one, maybe one, okay? The problem with Europe is that it doesn't provide enough of a deterrence on its own because it hasn't taken enough of a it hasn't taken the initiative in its own security. I think that the American security blanket has allowed European security to atrophy. And again, the point is not we want to abandon Europe. The point is we need to focus as a country on East Asia. And, and the clip cuts off there, but he's basically saying we have security concerns in East Asia. Europe needs to take care of Europe. He is responding there to the fallout from Donald Trump's joke about NATO funding and how countries need to fulfill their funding commitments to NATO if they expect the United States to step in and help defend them against potential Russian aggression. It's basically the response to all of this drama about how we need to give Ukraine $61 billion or the entirety of Europe is just going to completely collapse. Vance is there to deliver the message, you have to assume on behalf of Donald Trump, that Europe is responsible for the defense of Europe. And this is particularly true if the global regime has its sights set on NATO expansion and further provocation of Russia. If they want to prolong this war and continue wasting money and wasting lives to fail to fight back against Russia, then that's on them. It's not America's responsibility. Here is Andrea Mitchell a couple of days ago talking to the insane warmonger Michael McFaul who was ambassador to Russia under the Obama administration. Suggesting that very thing, so were Republicans. Lindsey Graham would go a step farther, and I think so would White House. I talked to him about this. Designated Russia as a state sponsor of terror. Due to them, what we do to Iran and North Korea and Cuba, without real justification there, you know, in terms of the real standard for that. But Putin... Is, a, is obviously a killer. There's no question about that. And there's bipartisan support for it, certainly in the Senate, I believe in the House as well. And there's talk about it. I would tell you, from what I can tell, that the Secretary of State would support it. There is also support. Uh, Brussels is against it because they hold a lot of the Russian debt. Japan is apparently against it. So are the Swiss. So do it individually. It should be a, a subject for the G7. What's wrong with that, Ambassador? So I want to uh, separate out the Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism from okay. taking the assets. Because I've written about both. I've talked to our administration about both. Uh, I think getting the money is easier than a state sponsor of terrorism, even though I personally support both of those. Uh, I run a sanctions group, and we wrote a paper in October of 2022 about how to transfer these assets, right? A year and a half ago. Uh, and I'm having met with many people in Brussels, uh, in Europe, you're exactly right on your analysis that they are less enthusiastic, but that's exactly why members of Congress should do it. Uh, because if they compelled the administration to do this in a joint package, um, that would make it easier for those who support the idea in Europe to go along. I just literally yesterday met with people that said, if America moved first, if America showed leadership, it would make it easier for them to do it. So this to me is just a win-win and it has such an obvious logic to it. And just symbolically, I want to say one last thing. I met with wounded warriors in Munich as well from Ukraine, some of whom had lost their sons and other friends. 
symbolically for them to pass this will mean so much to those soldiers sitting in the trenches. They need that signal, just the symbolic signal that we are not abandoning them is vitally important for them to keep fighting their war. So we've got to, they've got to get this done. History will not be kind to them if they block this. Every day they block this, this is a gift to Vladimir Putin. Why, as an American, do you want to be giving Mr. Putin a gift at this moment in history? So that guy's insane. He wants to confiscate assets or use already confiscated assets. Just steal that and give it to Ukraine. Can't get the money the way they normally get money, so they're going to get it from somewhere else. The countries of Europe aren't even into this idea. But who cares? We got to do it anyway. And if it doesn't get done, well, history is going to judge these people. This is always the threat. They are going to write history. And in the history they write, they are going to say very, very bad things about anyone who opposed their efforts right now. Here is Andrea Mitchell putting the focus back on Navalny's wife and Michael McFall totally exploiting it. Came out on the stage in Munich and you know, galvanized the whole conference. Now, today she was on his YouTube channel and saying that indicating she's ready to take the torch and continue his work. Talk to me about the significance of that. Well, it's obviously the thing she has to do. Uh, I, I saw her the day before her husband was killed in Munich. Uh, I was there with you, Andrea, when she spoke to the to the group. It was electrifying. You saw how strong she is. Uh, she's the obvious candidate to lead this charge. But if she were on this show with us right now, you know what she'd be talking about? She'd be talking about what you all just were talking about, this aid bill to Ukraine. Uh, Putin is a killer. Putin killed her husband and every day he's killing people on the Ukrainian battlefield. And if we want to stop that, if we want to fight evil, that's the word she would use, uh, you have to do something. And it's hard for her. She doesn't know what to do. But members of Congress have something right in front of them that they can do. It's right there. They can help stop the killing of Putin's war machine. Um, and I, too, met with members of Congress in Munich. Uh, uh, and again, they are self-selected, like Jonathan said. Uh, but this is a moment, this is a historic moment. If they don't pass this, historians will write about them like the American firsters in 1940, who said, oh, aid to Great Britain won't matter. Uh, this is not our war. Uh, they look very bad in retrospect in that position. And I think they have to take the initiative now. And I have one concrete solution, Andrea. I'm going to reveal it here on your show right now. They need cover, just like you said. Speaker Johnson needs some cover. He just can't roll over. Here's an idea. There's something called the Repo Act that is passed out of with overwhelming majorities from both the Senate and the Houses. It basically takes the frozen Russian assets that we have and it gives it to the Ukrainians. Uh, sponsored by Senator Reich, Republican, and Congressman McCall, Republican in the House. Marry that to this bill. And then Speaker Johnson can say to the people sitting behind Jonathan, where he is right now, I know them, they're not all thrilled about this. There's a debate within the Biden administration as to whether this is a good idea. I think it's the right idea. Put them together and then Speaker Johnson and his colleagues can say, we forced the Biden administration to give over these billions of dollars of Russian assets. It's a win-win and it's right before them. They could do it right now. So McFall says just straight up, 
that Yulia Navalny has to take Alexei Navalny's role on. She is now supposed to lead this effort and she is being used as a symbol to get this money to Ukraine no matter what. If they can't get the spending passed, then they need to do the sanctions and add on this repo act so they can take frozen Russian assets, just confiscate all of that and give it to Ukraine. That is some hardcore warmongering. And he wants the face of this effort to be the pretty blonde lady who just lost her husband. And of course, she's perfect for the role. She has been appearing around the world in his absence because he's been in prison over the last couple of years. She attended the Academy Awards in London and then the Oscars in Hollywood, both appearances for the CNN documentary called Navalny. She was right there on the ground at the Munich Security Conference, taking meetings with the likes of Michael McFall. And while she was there, it just so happened that her husband was finally murdered by Vladimir Putin. There is no doubt that Putin is a murderer, according to Andrea Mitchell and, of course, Michael McFall, despite the fact that there actually is doubt. There is no proof whatsoever that Vladimir Putin killed Alexei Navalny. While Yulia was at the Munich Security Conference, she was photographed with this woman. And why is Donald Trump so enamored of Putin? Well, part of it is he's a wannabe dictator. He has told us that repeatedly. He even said the other day, let's uh, basically get out of NATO and, you know, encourage Putin to do what he wants to do. How absurd a statement that is cannot even be, you know, measured um, because you are essentially giving a green light to a murderous, brutal dictator. So, of course, that's old hill dog looking more and more like George Soros with the familial eye bags that somehow Volodymyr Zelensky also shares. She's got a lovely lapel pin featuring an American flag and Ukrainian flag right next to each other. Apparently, she's just, you know, running for president again. And by the way, I know everybody thinks that's crazy. There's no way they'd replace Biden with Hillary. Well, there is a way. And what a plot twist that will be. But they photographed her in Munich speaking to Yulia Navalny, both with their short blonde hair, wearing essentially the same thing. And when you see that, you can't help but think about their similar roles, being wives of these powerful regime figures, and then eventually moving into the spotlight themselves. And it seems that Yulia is prepared to do that. She has been demanding the release of Alexei Navalny's body all week so that it can be examined by their people. And of course, results from any examination have not been released yet. All we know now is that he died suddenly when his heart stopped due to a blood clot. That is what we are being told. Now, is that from the vaccine? Who the hell knows? You want to see this entire narrative blow right up in their faces? If that is reported, that would do it. Every deranged, child-brained communist online who's been loudly emoting all week about Alexei Navalny and how Putin murdered him would probably have an aneurysm to find out that no, actually, the COVID vax got him. And what a sad tale that would be. Now, speaking of Yulia Navalny, what an interesting headline yesterday in the Daily Mail, X, formerly Twitter. 
suspends account of Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia Navalny, for violating rules before reinstating it 45 minutes later, a day after she set it up and accused Putin of killing her husband. Account suspended. A notice said on her account this morning with a note underneath saying X suspends accounts which violate the X rules. In the aftermath of the suspension, it was not immediately clear what rules had been broken and the account was reinstated 45 minutes later. X later explained that the platform's defense mechanism against manipulation and spam mistakenly flagged the account as violating the rules. The company said her account was recovered as soon as we became aware of the error. Yulia's account on the social media platform was set up on February 19th so that she could post a video of her speaking to the camera following her husband's death. In the video, she accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of killing Alexei. Now think about this. There is absolutely no proof that Navalny was murdered, much less by Vladimir Putin or anyone associated with Vladimir Putin. So should it be the case that X, formerly Twitter, has to host murder accusations levied against presidents by the widow of a person involved in staging a color revolution and attempting to subvert the government that president runs? Should we pretend there are no implications of this? Now, again, I would never promote the censorship of anything or anyone. But in this instance, the people claiming that they are being silenced are the ones responsible for silencing everyone else. X, formerly Twitter, is not a free speech platform, no matter how many times Elon Musk says it. And plenty of people are censored for far less than leveling murder accusations against the presidents of nations around the world. And it's very strange that Yulia did not have an account prior to the day before. It is very odd to set up an account on X, formerly Twitter, specifically to post a video accusing Vladimir Putin of murder. Let's get back to this article from the Daily Mail. Navalny set up her account yesterday and gained more than 90,000 followers within just 24 hours. After posting the video of herself speaking to the camera, she wrote, I don't care how the killer's press secretary comments on my words. Give back Alexei's body and let him be buried with dignity. Don't stop people from saying goodbye to him. So X, formerly Twitter, is claiming that all of this is innocent, just a result of automation, and they've fixed the problem. But you have to wonder if maybe they weren't just shutting down particular comms for a little while. I don't assume any of this is random. Now, We haven't discussed Donald Trump's reaction to all of this. He has said very little about Alexei Navalny. And why would he? Again, Navalny and the controversy around him is an information operation by the global regime. And it has spanned now well over a decade. His importance is overstated by orders of magnitude. He has virtually no support in Russia. He is not the leader of a Putin opposition movement although they are certainly promoting his wife to be one. It'll be interesting to hear what Trump says about Yulia if, in fact, he does end up addressing that situation. But on Navalny, he said on Truth Social Monday, the sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. It is a slow, steady progression with crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors and judges leading us down a path to destruction. 
open borders, rigged elections, and grossly unfair courtroom decisions are destroying America. We are a nation in decline, a failing nation, MAGA 2024. Now, it seems like Trump might have been doing a little trolling. It's called We Do a Little Trolling. And he's using his first remarks on the supposed death of Navalny that's being framed as an act of political oppression, stifling of all political dissent by Vladimir Putin. And he is redirecting focus to his own political persecution here in America. He's saying, if you want to call Alexei Navalny a political prisoner and the victim of political persecution, well, why not look at me, Donald Trump, and understand that I am an actual victim of all those things? And everybody knows it. It's right up in everyone's faces. And call me a conspiracy theorist, but I don't believe this instance of narrative overlap is simply a coincidence. The same day Navalny's death was announced, Donald Trump was ordered to pay nearly half a billion dollars to compensate no one as punishment for a non-crime that Donald Trump didn't commit and not a single victim anywhere was hurt by. And so naturally that response caused a meltdown among the media. Trump was asked again about Navalny last night in a town hall with Laura Ingram. He said Navalny was a brave man, brave for returning to Russia, knowing that he might face imprisonment. And then Trump turned it back onto himself and his own political persecution, because that is real. Unless, of course, you are totally enthralled to the central narrative and actually believe that Alexei Navalny represented a real credible opposition to Vladimir Putin to the point where Vladimir Putin would attempt to assassinate him and then allow his family to take Navalny's body and leave Russia with it completely, going back to Germany, and then later attempt to assassinate him again in prison. So one more story before I try to finally wrap all of this up, in case those first 300 dots weren't enough to connect. Here is just one more. This is the New York Times from Monday. The wife of Haiti's assassinated president is accused in his killing. A Haitian judge has indicted 51 people for their roles in the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moise, including his wife, Martine Moise, who is accused of being an accomplice despite being seriously wounded in the attack. A 122-page copy of the indictment by Judge Walter Voltaire that was provided to the New York Times does not accuse her of planning the killing, nor does it offer any direct evidence of her involvement. Instead, it says she and other accomplices gave statements that were contradicted by other witnesses, suggesting that they were complicit in the killing. The indictment also cites one of the main defendants in the case in custody in Haiti, who claimed that Mrs. Moise was plotting with others to take over the presidency. The accusations echo those contained in a criminal complaint filed by a Haitian prosecutor and submitted to Mr. Voltaire. The official charge against Mrs. Moise is conspiracy to murder. And skipping down just so we get some background on this, in case you don't remember this story from back in 2021, Mr. Moise, 53, was killed in the early hours of July 7th, 2021, when a team of Colombian commandos hired by a Miami area security company stormed the president's home in a wealthy suburb of the Haitian capital, according to the Haitian investigation. 
The president and his wife were shot after the gunmen entered the couple's bedroom and ransacked the home, apparently in search of documents and cash. In statements immediately after the assassination, Mrs. Moise said that she hid under the couple's bed to protect herself from the attackers, according to the indictment, which is dated January 25th. Now, to be clear, I am not implying that there was any coordination between these two events in actuality. That's not why I bring this up. I bring this up because we are engaged in narrative warfare. We are talking about fifth generational informational warfare. And when narratives align in many aspects, timing is something we should pay attention to. Every point the regime is attempting to make in their narrative deployments is being thwarted or sometimes preempted by narrative deployments from the other side. You are welcome to believe, but I do not believe that it is a coincidence that Alexei Navalny's wife is being elevated to the point where she is the new Alexei Navalny. She is the new Manchurian candidate created from nothing. At the same time, we are getting a narrative deployment about a presidential assassination in Haiti from three years ago. That Haitian leader, by the way, was not playing along with the global regime when it came to COVID and a range of other issues. That assassination is now being pinned on his wife. We are being told Alexei Navalny was assassinated and the beneficiary of that is his wife. Mrs. Moise is not being accused of killing her husband, but the implication, the assertion here is that she had something to do with it or an interest in covering it up. The assassination is from three years ago. The indictment is from a month ago, and we hear all about it right now at the same time we're hearing about Alexei Navalny's wife becoming the new Alexei Navalny. And you have to wonder if Alexei Navalny is just like Fonnie Willis. Is Alexei Navalny toast? Sure, he was dealing with the opposition, the heat from the Putin side, doing the bidding of the global regime, his handlers, whether they're CIA or MI6, could be both. His very close associations with Bellingcat and the National Endowment for Democracy. Did he start getting heat from that side? Was he burned on both sides? Did he eventually become useless, no longer able to perform his role? Did he need to be replaced? And who was he replaced with? Well, his wife is ready to step up. In fact, according to Michael McFall, she has to. So we have the convergence of all these events. They need the funding for the Ukraine war. The Russian election is a month away. There's supposed to be a Ukrainian one in six weeks. Zelensky fired the commander in chief, and then the new commander in chief retreats from Avdiivka, a regime stronghold that they'd been maintaining for 10 years. And as this is going on, Vladimir Putin is doing an interview with Tucker Carlson and Russia is releasing or attempting to release evidence to the world of biolabs and various plots to start World War III. Now, these are all very dangerous narratives if they actually get out and have the effect that they would have certainly had 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. That effect is no longer attainable for them now, which should be something that brings you a lot of positivity and optimism. This series of false starts is diffusing that narrative bomb. One Manchurian candidate is toast and they are now attempting to build another one. But this entire story is already spent. 
They don't realize it because they are in that informational bubble and their followers, the standard issue villagers, the warmongers on the uniparty right and the uniparty left, they will stick with the central narrative. They think there's a chance to get everybody back on the same page, but there's not. This is never going to work. The entire narrative is already destroyed and you don't need to wait for the Russians to give the narrative's body back. We can already investigate and understand that it is very dead. And its death was caused by incompetent people not understanding that the narrative war they're waging has already been lost. All right. So here ends the series on Alexei Navalny. I did not expect to devote five hours to this topic, but it pulls in so many other narratives and so many other concepts that I felt like it was worth it. I hope you feel like it is worth it. And I'm going to include the links that I referenced in today's show in the show notes. So check that out if you want to. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash imyourmoderator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Boland Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Boland Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!